From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While we're still a week away from the Orange and Blue game, the Gators held their first scrimmage last week to get a very early look at where the squad stood. On today's show, we'll recap what went down on the field, discuss the red-hot baseball team, and preview a big weekend for softball with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Also, you'll hear the story of sophomore defensive tackle T.J. Slayton, whose journey to UF includes his own version of the blind side. But first, when the Gators finally put the pads on and went head-to-head in their inaugural scrimmage last week, all eyes were firmly focused on one position, the quarterbacks. So to open our roundtable discussion, also covering baseball and softball, Scott and Chris weighed in on how the signal callers performed in their first round of live action. Well, I was like a lot of people. I wanted to see what the quarterbacks look like. That's the area of uh, Dan Mullen's expertise. He's had a really good success with quarterbacks in his career. And, you know, he's only had a couple of weeks to work with the guys. But uh, the thing that stuck out the most to me, obviously, was Kyle Traska. He looks like he's ready to finally compete for the job. He's been here for a while. He's had some injury problems. But, you know, he's healthy now, coming off a knee surgery last season. And he, you know, he, he held his own out there. I thought he probably had the best scrimmage of uh, any of the quarterbacks. All four took reps. Obviously, Felipe Frank started with the first team offense. And uh, in his defense, he didn't look great. He got it going at the end. But boy, the offensive line was really shaky the first uh, several drives. Uh, an offensive line coach, John Hevesy, let that whole group know about it uh, loudly uh, on the sideline. He was not pleased with some of their performance, and neither was Dan Mullen, for that matter, because at, at the halftime, uh, he talked specifically to that group and, and told them basically, hey, you know, you need to come out here from the start and, and uh, be charged up and bring that energy because the offense is going to play off the kind of energy that you guys have up front, and they did a better job in the second half. But the, to me, you know, it's a scrimmage. It's only the first one of camp. They have another one Saturday. Then they have the spring game, obviously. But I thought the most telling sign was that the quarterback battle, you know, everyone has assumed that Felipe Franks and Emory Jones, the hot guy, the new guy is always the hot guy. It would be down to those two. But Kyle Trask, I think, is going to factor in there. Nothing's going to be solved by the end of uh, spring camp. These guys, this competition is going to go into fall camp, certainly. But again, Kyle Trask did what he needed to do in the first scrimmage. One of the things about Kyle Trask, you know, he's going to be a guy who, from the fans' standpoint, They've only seen limited reps from him from spring games. So he's kind of like an unknown quantity. And he's even bigger than that. He's an unknown quantity because, hell, the guy didn't even start on his high school team. But who knows? Maybe he's uh, he's the guy who fits better into the system. He obviously uh, stepped up when the so-called lights were on a little bit more in that scrimmage. Being the first scrimmage, you, you don't want to get too high or too low about it. And I, I, Scott didn't mention this, but it, it, was, it was raining a little bit. It was. So it, so it was kind of, it was kind of damp, probably not conducive to the best of quarterback play. But to the point about the offensive line, I, I just, you know, I think I might have mentioned something about this last week about the biggest question mark of the team. And I, I you know, you got Martez Ivy, who's a senior. You got Tyler Jordan, who's a senior. You have, uh, 
Fred Johnson and Juante. These guys have played a lot of football here. TJ McCoy has played a lot of football. So these guys maybe should be a little bit further along. And I, that's probably one of the things that frustrates uh, the new offensive line coach is that here's this older offensive line that probably needs to be better. And, you know, it, it obviously starts with strength and, you know, move the pile and everything. But some of the plays in terms of moving before the snap count, um, some simple kind of things that probably that probably shouldn't be happening. And it's a good thing they're happening in the spring versus in the fall. So they'll have time to address all that stuff. But, um, Scott, the running backs, something to get excited about? I think right now the running backs are probably the strongest position group on the team. Uh, Jordan Scarlett has kind of uh, seamlessly uh, fit right back in. Uh, he got some carries. Uh, he wasn't the main workhorse. I think Damian Pierce, Iverson, Clement, those guys got a lot of carries, the two freshmen. Uh, they both look good. I, I really like the way Damian Pierce uh, runs. He's a very tough runner, runs low to the ground, is not afraid of contact, and he dishes out as much uh, punishment as he gets uh, when he carries the ball. And of course, Michael Pirine is back. And so, Adam, you look at the tailbacks, the uh, running back group. It's a pretty talented group, a diverse group. They have some different looks there. Uh, you got to remember, Scarlett's a pretty good receiver out of the backfield, too. Uh, so that adds a weapon, really, they didn't have last year in his absence. Um, so, whoever the quarterback is, is going to have some talent in the backfield. And obviously, as we Chris just mentioned, I mean, the offensive line to me is the key to all this because uh, that group, I think as experienced as they are, I think Dan Mullen expects more maybe than he saw the first scrimmage. And, you know, as they go into their second scrimmage here, uh, you know, the offensive line, if they don't perform better than they did the first one, certainly in that first half, they may hear it again from Dan Mullen. And uh, I would imagine uh, that's something that he wants to avoid. And obviously they should want to avoid. You know, defense is not something that gets talked about a lot in the spring. I don't know if it's not, I don't think it's just a Florida thing. I don't know that defense gets talked about anywhere during the spring because everyone wants to see where offenses are. Uh, but, you know, we're talking to, to TJ Slayton later on in this podcast. I'm curious, was there anyone defense that stood out to you or made an impression? I will say this. I mean, TJ Slayton, since you mentioned him, I mean, he, he, he and Zachary Carter combined for his sack, and those are two young guys who we haven't mentioned, I don't believe, on this podcast before. And, you know, with guys like Taven Bryan moving on and, uh, you know, Zachary Carter, uh, TJ Slayton, uh, Elijah Conliffe, uh, there's a lot, in, a lot of young guys up there who's going to get a lot of snaps and playing time. And Trini Dean, the freshman defensive back from the Atlanta area, he had an interception in the scrimmage. You know, we, he's kind of the guy back there among the newcomers who, who we've heard of the most. It uh, looks like a good athlete, but one thing that he also looks like he's a really good competitor. Uh, as a freshman, you could tell that he was not, uh, in any way intimidated by, you know, his teammates to scrimmage the atmosphere. They went in the swamp. Uh, so it was a little different, uh, setting maybe than uh, some of the scrimmages, but those, those are the young guys who stood out. Again, you know, they're still in that period, Adam, where although it was live except for the quarterbacks, I would imagine the uh, the physical nature of the second scrimmage probably will be a little bit more than the first. And we'll talk about that scrimmage next week as we lead into the Orange and Blue debut. But right now, I want to turn our attention to baseball. They're playing real games that count at the moment, and they're absolutely scorching hot right now. Dealt Vanderbilt a very, very rare sweep. Vandy almost never gets swept. Gators did that. Uh, they're on a nice run right now, and you guys both wrote 
about different members of the baseball team last week. Sky, I know you wrote about Michael Byrne breaking the UF saves record. Let's talk about him first and what he's done. I mean, it's amazing in such a short period of time, the assault that he's made on the Florida record books. Well, yeah, I mean, this time last year, he was just asserting himself in that role. And now uh, a year later, he's got, what, 26 career saves, which broke uh, John Pritchard's uh, record that had stood since 1992. And when you're on a good team, Adam, and you're on a team that won the College World Series last year, uh, you're going to get some save opportunities. And Michael Byrne has certainly made the most of those, uh, not only this year, but last year as he kind of took over that role. And obviously, uh, he was important in the team's run to the College World Series title. Just gives a different look than some of their power pitching starters. You know, he relies a lot on off speed and really uh, spotting his fastball and using it at different, at the right times. And just a very effective uh, weapon the Gators have behind that starting rotation. And Vanderbilt had not been swept in a three game conference series since 2012, which was a streak of 59 consecutive series. Mm. Last time it happened was here in Gainesville in 2012 against the Gators. And, you know, we all know about that rivalry that Kevin O'Sullivan and Tim Corbin, the Vanderbilt coach, they worked together at Clemson. They both built tremendous programs uh, in the SEC on their own. They both won national titles in the last five years. So that Florida-Vanderbilt rivalry is a good one. And and that was a big uh, series win for Florida. And the way you go on long winning streaks in baseball is by dominating not just weekends, but also your midweek games. And Florida's been successful there because of the incredible depth they have on their pitching staff. And Chris, I'll turn that to you because I know you wrote a piece on Jack Lefwich, a guy who would probably be a weekend starter, maybe a frontline guy for a lot of teams around the country. But for Florida, he's got to be a midweek starter because of how strong this pitching staff is. Yeah, and a midweek starter, and in, and uh, on on the weekends he needs to have a a role identified for that also. Which his play uh, last week, uh, what he did in going out against Florida State and giving five innings of of, of one hit baseball it was a really impressive thing uh, up there in in Jacksonville. Great environment, half the stadium filled with Florida fans, half filled with uh, Florida State fans. But what um, Coach Kevin O'Sullivan has said all season is, you know, he's got. Four really, really good freshman pitchers. He wants to find which ones he can count on on these weekend series to roll out as a bridge to Michael Byrne because he, he knows he's going to get pretty damn good starting pitching all the time. So which one, which guys can he rely on? And the way these guys can prove um, that they'll show out when he asks them to is, you know, he puts them in predicaments in midweek games like he did Jack Leftwich last week uh, against Florida State. Jack Leftwich gave way to Jordan Butler. Jordan Butler uh, went two innings and gave way to uh, to Byrne. And uh, Michael Byrne finished things off. But Sully left that uh, game against Florida State feeling a little bit better about Leftwich, probably feeling a little bit better about Jordan Butler, who going into the weekend series against Vanderbilt had a uh, 0.00 ERA as a relief pitcher. <laughs> and uh, he caught on all those guys, Jordan Butler, Tommy Mace, and Hunter McMullen, those freshmen. In certain situations in that Vanderbilt series, Mesa faced, I think, four batters and gave up three runs in the in, in the first game uh, that Florida won, of course, against Vanderbilt. But he came out and he got another shot later in the series and was much better in the one inning he pitched. So in game three of that Vanderbilt series, Tyler Dyson uh, was facing a bases loaded situation. And uh, Kevin O'Sullivan decided to go with Jordan Butler instead of letting uh, Dyson kind of work his way out of that jam. They were winning the game. It was in the fourth inning. You could tell because he went to the dugout and he was 
he was kind of mad because he wanted to not only get out of the inning, but he wanted to be in a position where he could get the win, having only going uh, four and a third of those innings. But Butler came in, worked his way out of a bases loaded, no out jam, and then eventually gave way to Jack Leftwich later to save the game. Leftwich went three innings, only gave up one hit. So uh, uh, not only did he start a game earlier in the week and win one against Florida State, he ended up saving one against Vanderbilt to uh, to to end that week or then that weekend rather and springboard in the next week. So obviously he's given a, the confidence that Kevin O'Sullivan now ha- now has in him or the trust level that maybe uh, hit that uh, he's been afforded uh, certainly increased from that week. When you've built a program as successful as Kevin O'Sullivan has, you're going to have a lot of former players that are making news in the big leagues, and that's the case this past week. Uh, two stories on opposite ends of the coin. Uh, really good news for former Gator Preston Tucker. Not so good news for A.J. Puck. Tell us about both of those guys and what they're doing in the bigs right now. Well, you know, Preston Tucker is getting a second shot at his big league career with the Braves. The Braves are obviously in a kind of a rebuilding mode. They're they're getting closer, Adam. I know you're an Atlanta resident, uh, a big Braves fan. They're getting closer, but I don't know if 2018 is going to be the year. But Preston Tucker, it's a big year for him because it's a chance for him to uh, start and get some playing time. And he uh, he was really impressive in the uh, opening season opening series against the Phillies. And there's one thing we've always known about Preston Tucker is he can hit if given the chance uh, you know, he came up with the Astros a couple of years ago and was part of that youth movement they had. And, uh, you know, he did well in some limited playing time. Uh, but the Astros were so stacked with young talent that, you know, he was just an odd man out. And uh, right now he's getting an opportunity and uh, taking advantage of it. And then you talk about A.J. Puck. I mean, this guy was the, the sixth overall pick in the draft a couple of years ago. There was talk that he was going to be a possible uh, mid-season addition to Oakland's starting rotation, but he had to shut it down. With uh, He's going to have to undergo the old Tommy John surgery. and That's not as scary of an injury as it once was for, uh, for a young pitcher because the uh, techniques uh, are so much more improved, surgical techniques. And, of course, you can just look all around baseball now, and there's so many of these pitchers who are stars now who have had Tommy John surgery at some point during their career. Uh, it's a much better injury to have to your elbow than it is, obviously, to your shoulder. Uh, the A's are still really high on A.J. Puck, but it looks like 2018 is not going to be the year. But he, he, you know, he showed some good stuff in spring, his first four outings, and then started having some discomfort and got rocked a couple of times, and, and that raised eyebrows, and he, he complained of some uh, pain, and, and it led to uh, the diagnosis. So, uh, so too bad for him, but... The Gators are uh, certainly well represented in the majors right now with, you know, Tucker, Mike Zanino, Bobby Porter with the Red Sox. Brian Johnson had a big start with the Red Sox the other night. Uh, so Sullivan is putting out players and it's starting to show on the major league level. Yeah, and just before we recorded this uh, conversation, Preston Tucker actually had a three-run homer off of reigning NL Cy Young winner Max Scherzer, which I'm sure Chris, as the uh, – the reigning Nationals fan on our podcast was probably not too happy about. I do. I'll want, know with it. I think there are about 158 more. There are. There's. There's a lot more opportunities for uh, for that to get better. But I do want to bring Chris in though to talk about softball here because we're talking about big power hitters. And Chris, you wrote a story last week about Jordan Matthews, and we've seen a lot of really talented freshmen come through Tim Walton's program. She's the latest one helping to provide some pop at the plate, and it's going to be really important for the Gators this weekend. They're going to Alabama, which is 
one of the biggest rivalries in the sport and certainly would draw a lot of eyeballs on national television. Yeah, I mean, Alabama was the team that came here for the Super Regional last year. They actually led that regional uh, one to nothing after a, a three nothing shutout. I believe it was Alexis Osorio came and shut him out in that in that first game. But Florida came back and won the next two. A uh, big outing from Kelly Barnhill to send them to the College World Series. Um, Alexis Osorio is still there. Kelly Barnhill still here. So uh, that should be quite a series. You look at the SEC standings right now, Adam. Florida's in first place at seven and two. But I mean, Georgia's in second with nine wins at nine and three. Then you got South Carolina at six and three. The, the, the standings look really funny. LSU at five and three is next. Then Auburn at seven and five. And then Arkansas, A and Texas A&M, and Alabama are all right behind at five and four. So you're talking about eight teams within two and a half games of that uh, top spot there. So, you know, it's, it's wide open. Still, um, and uh, Florida goes to Alabama, and these, both of these teams could be College World Series teams this season. Um, we'll see how it plays out, obviously. But uh, you mentioned uh, Jordan Matthews; she's a person, like you said, I, that that I wrote about last week. Another one of uh, Tim Walton's uh, California Pipeline girls came across country. She didn't practice at all during the fall; uh, hardly played at all because she, uh, in her her last at bat of her high school career, she blew out her knee. Uh, on a stand-up double, just stepping on the bag in second place in a state playoff game. Didn't play again until uh, her, her first game as a Florida Gator and hit a home run. Hmm. So uh, she's kind of finding her way. She was a shortstop in high school. They're, they're working her as a utility player now. She's playing mostly uh, in the outfield when she does play or as the designated hitter. As it stands right now, she's right in the middle of the lineup. She provides some pop to the bat, and that's something certainly uh, the Gators will use can use and uh, they'll lean on her like they do all their talented freshmen that they roll after. For this week's PAT, I want to talk about unwritten rules and specifically as it pertains to baseball. This came up earlier this week uh, when we had a Twins Orioles game that I don't know that I was paying any attention to or many people were, but it made news when in the ninth inning in a seven nothing game with one out, Chance Cisco, who plays for the Orioles. Uh, he's a rookie who was trying to get on base. They had the shift on against him with one out, bases empty, they're down by seven runs. Uh, and he laid down a bunt to beat the shift, which worked. He got on base. They ended up obviously losing the game, but he was just trying to get on base and did you know what he saw in the moment, which was an opening to bunt to the left side. Well, the Twins were not happy about it. They came out of the game and said he had broken one of the unwritten rules. You don't bunt in that situation when there's the shift on. And there's been a lot of back and forth on this. I, for one, I think this is crazy. You're down in the game. They're putting on the shift. What are you going to do? You're trying to get on base. I don't know how you blame him for that. So I'm curious what you guys think about, number one, this particular gripe, and number two, the overall idea of the unwritten rules of the game. Do you subscribe to these, or do we need to move on from some of these antiquated concepts? Someone who really enjoys baseball, used to play baseball, the unwritten rules have always, I think, even been confusing to those in the heat of the moment. I mean, basically, I think if unwritten rules are so important, why don't you write the damn things down? You know? <laughs> basically, I think this, I'm like you, this is pretty silly. So what other sport, like, think about this. Think about, I mean, I get the fact that Hey, the guy's trying to get on base. The game's not over. They're still playing. Seven runs is a big deficit, but it's not impossible. You got to take it. 
you know, as these managers, coaches love to say, one pitch at a time. You got to stay alive. That's all the guys trying to do. I always tried to figure out, like, why when David Ortiz was playing, not that he needed to do stuff like this very often, but they always had those huge shifts. And, I mean, if he punches one to left field, is that is that against the rules? I mean, uh, I just think this is pretty antiquated conversation here. And the ones that I think matter, you know, there's an unwritten rule about a guy with a no-hitter or a perfect game. And you don't want to try to break that up with a surprise bunt. But then again, if the guy does, I mean, that's your defense. you got to be aware of that. Uh, so I don't know. I, I'm, I'm kind of mixed on some of it, but I think this one here is just ludicrous. Okay, so the defense is allowed to get in a shift to prevent a hit, but the hitter's not allowed yeah, to try to get on base. Pretty much. Right, exactly. That's basically what we're saying right yeah. here. Now, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, one of the bone of contentions was the pitcher had a one-hitter going. And so they were thinking that that was kind of a, a cheap thing. Now, to Scott's point, if it was a if it was a no hitter, I, I could see that also. And yeah, you get in a shift if that's what he's going to do. But hey, nobody you know, remembers one hitters. Nobody remembers one hitters. That's right. exactly right. The loudest unwritten rules are usually the ones where where you got to hit a guy. And I think those are the things that are the most antiquated right now. I remember watching the game last year, and again, where Hunter Strickland came in and hit Bryce Harper for a stare down he got two years ago in a, in a playoff game. That's stupid. Okay. That's a stupid unwritten rule. If that's really what's supposed to, what was supposed to happen, because any kind of a situation where a pitcher is throwing at somebody um, is dangerous. Is it warranted? Sometimes maybe so uh, just as a, as a retaliatory kind of thing, but not something two years later The those are where, those are the unwritten rules. I think that really need to be flushed out a little more when you're really throwing, throwing projectiles at guys. And uh, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but I'm kind of over the whole thing now because these guys throw baseballs really, really hard, and you know something could really happen to somebody one day. Oh, I agree. And the greatest one, unwritten rule, I remember one time when Dale Murphy played for the Phillies. The Braves were playing them, and there was an incident where it was, okay, unwritten rule, you need to hit a guy after what had unfolded. Dale Murphy steps up, Tom Glavin's pitching. You really think? Tom Glavin wanted to hit Dale Murphy. He threw three or four lolly baggers up there behind him. Obviously, <laughs> that he was supposed to hit him, but he didn't. Uh, he got kicked out of the game regardless. But, it, I mean, there's just some situations where the only way you can describe them accurately are antiquated. And, uh, and where does it stop there? I mean, uh, you could easily take this conversation to other sports. I mean, in football, if you're up 28 nothing fourth quarter and you're second, String defenses in is the other team supposed to just not try to do anything now? I, mean, I don't know. It's it's a wounded conversation that won't end, but it, it cracks me up every time this comes up. We got a guy down the hall from us. Uh, it's got HBC on the placard outside his window. I don't think he would subscribe to any unwritten rules relative to uh, no. how you're supposed to play it. And, but that again, that's that's football, and I don't know. It's, uh, I thought that was a pretty silly brouhaha for the what was it the second game of the season yeah a little yeah. little early to start getting again as you mentioned a few minutes ago uh, there's 162 of these things so maybe just settle down with some of the early ones but baseball was very reluctant to change just this year they expanded the netting above the dugouts and it only took a two-year-old girl almost dying at Yankee yeah. Stadium after 1700 people were getting injured every year by foul balls that it finally finally decided to change that after all this time so who knows how long it'll take to flush out some of the other unwritten rules because of baseball's unwillingness to change that's right and you got a whole you got a whole left side of the infield open up and then you're shocked that this guy 
would hit a ball over there to try to get on base when you're, you're in that ship totally to keep him from getting on base. You know what it has me really excited <laughs> now about this young baseball season? The next time the Orioles and Twins play. That's oh, right. <laughs> He's going to get one in his ear. They're, they're talking about, they'll be talking about unwritten rules all that week. Better believe it. Yeah, no question. The knives will be out when those guys come back around. But uh, we never take the knives out when Chris and Scott are here. We love talking to you guys. We appreciate all your insights. And, again, encourage everyone to check out the steady stream of content they are posting to FloridaGators.com and on Twitter at GatorsScott at GatorsChris. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. While the offense dominates headlines and discussion, the Florida defense is quietly taking shape under new coordinator Todd Grantham. That side of the ball is chock full of young playmakers ready to make their mark, and that includes T.J. Slayton. The massive defensive tackle has followed a very unique path to get to this point, but before delving into that, we asked him to give us his perspective on the team's first scrimmage. I think we need to be more like attention to detail. We're just a little off, but we're getting there. You got to be more sharp. And then I think overall, I think overall, we're good. What did you think went well for you? What did you like about how you performed, and what did you feel like needed to be better for you? Just improving, like my foot speed, releasing off the block, and hands, my hands, my hand placement. If we can take things back a little bit, can you tell us about your family and where you grew up? Uh, I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and like a little. Like a little hood called Sunland Park. Spent most of my whole life there, but we moved around a couple times. Now, I know basketball was a, a big part of your life before football was. How did you get involved with basketball? I had stopped playing football in sixth grade. That was my last year playing football, so I didn't have anything else to do. So I just got into basketball, something that like I'm still interested in. <laughs> Why basketball? Like, what, what drew you to it? Oh, uh, just like being around like brand new guys and like I didn't have any friends, so like they like the sport. It was fun to play. Like I never got bored with playing basketball. You, it's like something you can do on your own. It's like the love love for the game. Like I actually enjoy playing basketball. It's fun fun to me. When more like football is more of a a job thing. Well, I know it was through basketball that you connected with someone who became really important in your life. So can you tell us about? how you and Drew Lamont really hit it off. So I met him in the seventh grade. He was the only white boy on my team. <laughs> I never actually knew that we were going to, like, grow up together and, like, go to high school and, and play with each other for that long. But we ended up doing that. We went to the same high school. So like, our friendship is still – we still talk to each other almost every day. Yeah, he's, he's basically family. Now, if we can fast forward a little bit to just before you started high school, I know you went through a, a really traumatic experience literally the day before you were starting ninth grade. So can you take us through that whole situation and what happened to you and your family? We just had like a bad miscommunication with the people that we was renting the house out to, who was renting the, renting the house to us. And then we just uh, we had like a, a lot of rooms we had to correct, basically. Some things just weren't going right. My mom was unhappy about how how our life was going at the point at that point so we just had to we had to get out <laughs> right so the, the day before high school starts you're you're out of your house you've got nowhere to go and you yeah. end up at the Lamont family's house which is obviously your your friend Drew how did that yeah. idea come about how, how did that happen uh that was that was like my decision to help out my mom 
her situation. We were going through a rough time, so I told her I'd go stay over there with them just to help her out for she to get her money and like situated to what she was wanting to do going forward with, with her plans. So it kind of it helped out a lot. It took, it took a lot of stress off off the family now that a little bit more money was rolling in and then she was getting herself situated. So it was all to help the family. So you go over there to, to live with, with the Lamonts. Is this, in your mind, you know, a short-term thing? Did you ever think you'd end up staying there for all of high school? I did not think I was going to stay there all of high school. I thought I was just going to do my freshman year and then move back with my mom. But it seemed to be a long-term thing. What was that like for you? I mean, kind of joining another family. They've got the way they do things. You have the way that you do it. How, how did you adjust to that? It didn't feel like I was staying there. It felt like I was spending the night for a very long time because <laughs> we always we always went to like family dinners we always went out to eat uh we like we the grandparents would come over we would have like a good time stuff like that so it felt like it felt like i was just spending the night for a while but then then it became like oh this is like this is like my second family so like they took care of me just like my mom would do a lot of people have compared your story to the blind side was that something you thought about when all of this was happening? And, and how do you feel about that comparison? I didn't think it was anything like that. Because it was just like a, uh, just a bunch of boys. Mm-hmm. Like, besides the mom, it was, it was like it was a bunch of, bunch of boys. So, you've talked about basketball. I'm curious when football came back into the picture for you after you had stopped playing when you were a lot younger. Oh, uh, I was going to a different high school. So, and then when I got there, I was taking a tour. And it was like, they just like, they asked me that I wanted to play football. And I was like, yeah, I'll play. Because I don't like to be, as a kid, like, I always wanted to do something that was, like, active. So I just, like, agreed to play. I was like, okay, I'll play. And that's kind of how everything started. And then once you did that, when did you really make the decision to make football your future as opposed to basketball, which you had been focused on before that? It was like, my basketball offers came late. It came, but they came after I committed to Florida, so hmm. it was kind of like a too late because I was gonna go play basketball, but it was too late for me to switch, make this make the change. I'm still happy with my decision. <laughs> yeah, some people really struggle to get college offers, especially in football. And then you were getting them before you even played it down in high school. So can can you tell us a little bit about that when your first offer came in? Uh, I don't even know, like. I was with my coach, uh, Coach Mario Perez, and then we just he was like, "Oh, do you want to go to UM?" And I was like, "Yeah." So we went down there with me and Torrance Gibson, and I believe Big Fatter was with us too. So we go down there, and then I walk into the office, and then one of the coaches tell me they want to offer me. I told him, I was like, "I haven't even played football yet," <laughs> and he was like, "He was like, oh, we know." He's like, "But just look at you. We know you're gonna be good." Huh. I was like, okay. And then the next day, after my first practice, I got LSU. Wow. Obviously, you got a lot of interest right off the bat. Did that really motivate you to make football your future? Because without even playing, you were already getting so much of uh, so much attention? Yeah, but like the way I look at things, I, I live day by day. I kind of didn't really think of the future. I just kind of wanted to get high school football started. 
Well, because of your size, 6'5", and nearly 360 coming out of high school, uh, a lot of colleges wanted to put you on the offensive line, but, but you saw yourself as a D-tackle. Why was it important to you to be on the defensive side of the ball? It's because, like, when I first started playing football, my first position was uh, a nose guard, and I liked that position. But when I got to high school, all the defensive spots was taken. So and then it was an open starting right tackle spot. So I just – and I remember, like, my last year, literally, I got coached by my older cousin, and he was offensive lineman in college. So he made me play both sides of the ball. So – but then I kind of always liked defense. I always liked attacking instead of just, like, blocking. You got 17 offers from major programs, and ultimately you chose Florida. So what was that process like to make that decision, and why did Florida stand out in the end? Uh, when I would take the visits to UM, it didn't feel like it was home. It didn't feel homey enough for me. Like, that's how I need every place to feel, most likely. And then Florida State, I didn't have an offer for them. I guess they took their offer back. So, like, Florida was kind of like my last choice. But then, like, I had players who came here, Marco, James. So I went to, like, a place where I knew people like Jordan Scarlett and then all the people from Brown, like Brian Edwards, CJ, Sean, Gamble. Like, I knew most of them. So it was, like, coming to, like, coming to, I didn't want to go to any place where I didn't know people. Mm. And then it was easy for my mom to come see me. So once I figured that my mom was easy for my mom to come see me play, it was kind of a win-win. So you had a chance to get on the field a good bit as a freshman. Now, as you get ready for year two, what were some of the biggest lessons you learned from your freshman season that you've used to grow? Uh, stay humble. Stay humble. Don't try to rush until being a starter and, and, and just wanting to play. That's all I want to do is play, play, play. It's a process. Sometimes, yeah, you're going to work hard to, to beat out that that next person, but you also have to just wait your, wait your turn. Coaching changes are difficult on everyone. Can you talk about the impact it's had on you and how you've adjusted to having a new coaching staff? Uh, it's, it is a turnaround because you got so used to your old coaches. So when the new coaches come in, it's kind of like you got to get to know like a whole new person when, you're always, when you already got used to one person. But it wasn't a really hard adjustment because we got Sal Sincere. He came straight from the NFL. So it was like, yes, I got a, like, an NFL coach. But I loved Runt. Runt was like uh, like a father figure to me, basically. But then when you got Sincere, he's like an NFL coach. And then he's been there, and that's where you want to go. So, like, everything that he says, you want to write it down, take a like take a note like you want to post it on your wall or somewhere like because you want to remember everything that he says because he's been there Mm -hmm. so you want to take everything every little thing you want to pick his brain on everything so that's the good thing about having uh like the new learning coach yeah what do you feel like you've learned from coach sunsir i mean what are some of the things you've picked his brain about the most um it's just like how like uh nfl players like be learning how they work during practice and I always wonder, because he always say, you got to give a look when you're helping another teammate. You got to burst to the ball. You got to you gotta make sure all your technique is perfect. Like, and then, I, then I ask him, like, how do they train in the NFL? Like, how do they make their technique perfect? How do they give looks? And then he say, full speed. Everything's full speed. Even though you just giving somebody a look, you're going to get them an end-of-game look. Like, full speed at all times. Outside of what you've learned specifically from Coach Sanceri, 
What are some of the biggest overall changes that you've seen in terms of how the program is run with this new staff? What's something you've seen day to day that's been really different? The way we approach every day, every day we approach the day with like something different, something like has a different motive. Like the strength staff, like they got so much juice, like they all they try to get us ready for every workout. Like they come in with bull horns and and loud and loud noises trying to get us hyped up. Last few things for you. Uh, off the field, what do you like to do for fun outside of playing football and, and some basketball when you have a chance? Play 2K, Fortnite. Yeah, I think I, I like to draw. Do you like to draw? What, what do you like to draw? Anything that comes to my head, basically. I like to sketch. I look at a lot of things and try to draw me. Final thing for you. Uh, spring game coming up next week. And while it's mostly about the offense for the fans, what are you hoping to take away from that scrimmage? What I really want to take away from the scrimmage is like having perfection with my hands and, and getting off the ball quick and making a move fast and not and not taking three seconds to make my move. And I want to be a quick reaction, get to the ball. Well, TJ, we hope you have a great scrimmage. We hope you have a great sophomore year. And uh, we thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us. Appreciate it. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. With a busy slate of action happening on the road this weekend, make sure to stay connected to FloridaGators.com for stories, scores, and more. We'll be back next week with a full preview of the spring game, so don't miss it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you on the practice fields.